Welcome to the Endurance Nutrition Show. I'm Emily Mon, and my co-host, Elise Hinton. Hello. <laughs> Hi. Um, we're here with Jackie Baker, who is a really rad biker chick. She's a lover of long rides and one of four female finishers in the Atlas bikepacking race in Morocco in February. So welcome, Jackie. Thanks. Good to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have you and learn about your race and more about you. <clears throat> so as is typical with um, all of our podcasts, we're going to start with a break the ice food game. So Jackie's going to tell us a little bit about one of her favorite um, writing foods. One of my favorite writing foods is <laughs> gummy bears. <laughs> uh, I actually had to hoard these a little bit away from myself because I didn't want to go back out to the store to have to buy more. <laughs> gummy bears. <laughs> we both right. got Haribo. Or... Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This was the last pack at Walmart when I went <laughs> last night and then I was also picking some up for Emily and so I thought I was going to have to divvy them out, but then they had mini packs by the checkout, so. Yeah, see, popular, popular item. Jackie, what are, your, what are your favorite gummy bears, top three? Um, well, these are the Harmon's bulk ones, which are actually, I think, the Albanese that you can get at a lot of the Mavericks and 7-Elevens and other places. Um, Harbo also is a... Uh, fan favorite. Um, one of the things I love about doing these international races is that often when you travel, you can find other flavors and styles of gummies. Um, however, I will say that in Morocco, they are not huge gummy fans. Um, <laughs> so the options were limited. Uh, I did a race in Kyrgyzstan, the Silk Road Mountain Race in 2018. And Kyrgyzstan was a big fan of the gummy treats, so I got to try a lot of <laughs> treats there. But uh, ice cream and gummy bears were scarce in uh, Morocco, unfortunately. <laughs> that is really sad. Uh -huh. <laughs> but I, I made it. I'm, I had to ride faster to get finished to yeah. get ice cream and gummy treats. <laughs> Sweet. Well, we're excited to learn more about the race. Um, let's see here. So. We're just going to kind of get into the nitty gritty. Tell us, how did you get involved in cycling? What's your history with the sport? Um, oh, man. How long have you been doing it? Yeah, so I really got into cycling in general in uh, 1997. Uh, I was a freshman at, the, uh, at Western State College of Colorado, which is now called Western Colorado University or something. Is that, that, is that uh, Durango? Gunnison. Gunnison, oh, Colorado. Gunnison. Okay. Yeah. I, Fort Lewis I, is Durango. Okay. I'm actually from Grand Junction. So I was like, I was like, that sounds really familiar. I know it's close to Grand Junction, yeah. but yeah. Yeah. We used to, um, I raced in college. That's kind of how I got into it. And we used to race Mesa State, which is now a different name as well. <laughs> Colorado Mesa University. There we go. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I'm old, <laughs> but uh, I started riding in 1997 um, in the, that summer. Um, I had grown up riding horses and skiing and things, but when I went to college, I didn't have my horse and I had been a cross country runner, but I was in no way um, <laughs> close to being able to even run club um, at Western because they're super fast there. And so uh, all of my friends rode mountain bikes and I would go on these rides with friends and they'd be terrible. Uh, I was riding an Umbros on a 
Diamondback Outlook Steel POS. And um, I would come back from a ride and be like, that was horrible. And people would be like, no, mountain biking is fun. Come out with us. And really, it's the people that kind of hooked me. And then kind of a story that hasn't changed over time is that they, the team, the Western State um, cycling team, the collegiate team, needed women to race to get more points. And so they just kind of like suckered me in because as long as I finished the races, I would get points for the team. And then I eventually got hooked. So I started off racing cross country. And then eventually um, in my mid 20s, I started racing gravity uh, thanks to an old discipline called Super D. Um, where it was kind of a mass start descent type race, <laughs> kind of what, uh, for those who don't know, it's kind of like what enduro is now, but it was only one stage. It was a lot longer. You started at the top, you finished at the bottom. And I figured out that I was kind of good at that. And then um, eventually from there started riding and racing downhill. Um, and I had a very brief uh, pro downhill stint <laughs> Um, where I raced in California and Utah, uh, went to nationals, things like that. Um, not very good, was broken, broken most of the time, um, <laughs> but gained a lot of skill, which was really awesome and uh, learned a lot. And so then when I kind of stopped racing gravity, um, I really just started riding a lot on my own, kind of in the woods. I lived near Downeyville for a little while um, and would go on big, long rides. Um, had a really good race at the um, Downeyville Classic one year. Um, and then just kind of spent a lot more time on my own in the middle of nowhere. And that's kind of where I started getting excited about uh, being a little more self-sufficient, though I didn't really realize it at the time. Uh, and then... I worked for Giant for several years. I worked with their women's program, drove a van around the country and helped shops uh, do better selling to women. And uh, a friend of mine uh, suckered me <laughs> into signing up for the Cape Epic in 2012. Um, and so we were in separate parts of the country training and came together in uh, South Africa and did and completed the race. And I swore I would never do anything like it again. Um, we finished it. I was miserable. Uh, I barely finished. The only reason I think I finished is because it's a partner race. And if you don't finish with your partner, you're not considered a finisher. And I didn't want to do that to my partner. Um, and it was rough. It was super rough. I had a bunch of uh, physical issues um, and finally limped across the finish line. Uh, and when I was training for that, so, uh, Kelly Emmett was our coach. And one of the things that she told me leading into it was make sure you eat real food um, save all the gels and all of the sugar and all of that stuff for the end of it any day so that it just gets you through like the sugary gel endurance type product is there to just get you through but real food is what's going to allow you to spend a day on the bike and not feel sick um, spend a day on the bike and and not um not bonk super hard. And uh, that's something that kind of stuck with me. The other piece of advice that she gave that stuck with me is that something will always change. So like climbing a super hot, long hill um, with blazing sun, hating life. Uh, <laughs> around the corner, there might be a breeze. Um, you might be able to switch gears or stand up for a second or see somebody passing or something, you know, even just stop and stand in the shade for a millisecond, um, just to change your life and remember that something is going to, you know, it's not always going to feel like this. And that's another thing that kind of stuck with me. Uh, 
fast forward, I ran a business uh, for a little while here in Salt Lake. It was a coffee truck and uh, it failed miserably, um, like flat on my face <laughs> with it. Um, and I, it took a lot to recover from that. And when I was recovering from that and really trying to figure out like, what do I want to do with my life? Like, why am I such a failure? Um, a friend that used to live here, you guys might know him, Matt Blango. Um, he used to live and race here. He now lives in Germany. He posted on Facebook that there's this race happening in Kyrgyzstan and did anyone want to go? And I clicked on the link and immediately was like, yes, I want to go. Mind you, I knew nothing about bike packing. It's a self-supported solo bike packing race for a thousand miles in Kyrgyzstan. Um, I had heckled friends um, just recently that were bike packing because it just seemed so silly to go so slow, uh, loaded with all of the stuff that you could just put in a car and drive to wherever you're going um, and, and not enjoy your time on the bike and then also get to a campsite and not have all the stuff you wanted the campsite. Like it just seemed so um, dumb. <laughs> and so uh, I then got super into bike packing. Um, it was the perfect uh, therapy for coming out of losing the business because I just rode into the woods. I rode into the Wasatch Mountains for as long as I wanted and spent the night wherever I wanted and rode for as long as I wanted and hung out by myself and figured out what worked and what didn't work, tested gear, tested food. Uh, and then went to Kyrgyzstan and only made it three days in the race. <laughs> and uh, had an awesome time. I love Kyrgyzstan. I would go back in a heartbeat. Learned a lot about the self-supported long-distance bike packing scenario where you can't treat it like a race. Like, you have to treat it like, um, you, you have to treat it in a more methodical way you can't uh, for me anyway for a regular human um <laughs> some people can go out there and treat it like a race but for me the race scenario of gotta go gotta go gotta go gotta go you can't stop here gotta keep going gotta keep going um it didn't let me uh it wasn't sustainable for me uh and when i went to morocco the reason i went to morocco this uh, this February is that I wanted to finish one of these things. I wanted to see if I could do it. It was the same producers as the Silk Road Mountain Race. So I kind of knew what to expect. I'd already guinea pigged for them once. And this is a first time race also. So I'd be guinea pigging again. Um, but this time going into Morocco, um, especially because that was February. So as you know, here in Utah, um, long distance training really isn't a thing. I was on my skis more than I was on my bike um, leading up to it. My strategy was much more like just ride at my pace, do what I need to do for me, and just keep moving. Don't worry about if it's slow. Don't worry about if I need to take a break. Do those things that I need to do so that I can get to the finish. And then that worked. Wow. Nice. <laughs> you have a very uh, colorful history with biking. It like super d and that's just it's so interesting to hear about yeah yeah i think uh we've forgotten about some of these disciplines like mountain cross and super d and dual yeah. that used to be so popular but have kind of brought us to where we are today yeah that's awesome so kind of taking a little step back yeah. how did you first hear about the atlas not bike race uh because or, excuse I me bike packing race oh yeah because I had first done the Silk Road mountain race. Um, so like I said, um, I learned about that through just a friend's post um, online. 
and then got hooked. Uh, Atlas Mountain Race is the same producers as Nelson Trees, and he put on the Silk Road Mountain Race. And so, he, you know, that I had started to see some photos trickling around, and I'd started to see, uh, you know, they started an Instagram page and things like that for Atlas Mountain Race. And I started kind of poking around, like, is this the thing that's going to happen? And they hadn't announced times or, or when it would happen yet. This was like last summer. <laughs> And then I think they announced it, like, maybe it was, like, August or July or something like that. And um, as soon as they announced it, I was like, I should go to Morocco. <laughs> and Morocco had never been on my list. Kyrgyzstan had never been on my list for places to go. But um, I am so glad I've been to both. So what is kind of the format of these, these bike packing races, like, where do you stay like i don't know how does all the timing work out and where do you stay and all of that mm -hmm. yeah so um there's a grand start um so that is you know announced where, where that's going to be there's it's usually like a hotel type of scenario um and so basically there there are some logistics involved wherein you know you've traveled there with all your gear you have a bike box you have all this stuff for like just living before you even get on the bike and so all of that gets piled into a room and then the race organizers transport that to the finish um, so that you can pack your bike at the finish and get it back to the airport or wherever you need to go. Um, and then everything else that you need for potentially a week or more is on the bike. Um, so for Atlas Mountain Race, it started on the 15th and we had till midnight on the 22nd to finish. So we started at 9 a.m. on the 15th, which is a Saturday and you had till midnight the following Saturday to finish and be considered a finisher. My goal was to finish um, before that, obviously, <laughs> just to finish, um, but I was pretty convinced I could get done either sometime on Friday or sometime on Saturday, um, just based on, and you're, you're totally going on like topography, you do get released a GPX track of the route beforehand, so I mean, you're Google mapping everything to see like what little town has shops, how far do you, I think I can go in a day. And so there's a lot of like pre-race prep that goes into it of figuring out, you know, can I ride a hundred miles a day? How long do I need to sleep for? Um, is there a town to get water? In Kyrgyzstan, water was really easy. There were rivers everywhere. You just filtered water whenever you wanted it. In um, Morocco, water was really a commodity so you had to make sure you had enough water to get from town to town knowing that in a lot of places you weren't just going to find some random river um, to, it's a desert uh, you're not going to just be able to grab water wherever you want some places yes but wasn't a guarantee so you wanted to make sure you knew your distances and, and a lot of us would write out or print out a list of where towns were and how far they were and what was happening next um, there's some pretty detailed work that goes into it from the organizers too of making sure that they say where the big towns are and things like that so that you have an idea but it's up to you to to get there on time and, and not run out of water or food then on top of that um, you're taking your sleep kit you're taking enough food that you might need for whatever you feel comfortable with so i learned in kyrgyzstan that you can't rely on the shops and towns necessarily to have food that you want to eat. <laughs> um, in Kyrgyzstan, there was a lot of like dry pasta, weird little Russian candies, um, funky chips that tasted like weird stuff. 
<laughs> there's always Coke. There's always Fanta. Um, but the, a lot of them come in like the, the full liter bottles. So it's not like <laughs> you're like, I'm going to chug. Yeah. Um, <laughs> not like you can just, you know, throw a can of soda in your pack and then drink it later, you know? Um, yeah, a lot of handoffs to children along the side of the road. Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> they love it. Um, but yeah, so then that's all with you. And then when you depart, uh, it's up to you where you stop to eat, when you stop to eat. You need to purchase stuff along the route. You can't expect people to give it to you. So you need to like buy things like that are commercially available. Um, you can stay in hotels, which was kind of a shock to me. It's something I hadn't really thought about in Kyrgyzstan, but I had it in my head when I went to Morocco. Um, I had only one night that I really, really, really wanted to stay at a hotel and I kind of planned on it. And then I got to the town and realized there was like no option for a hotel. There were a bunch of us that were like, we're ready for a, no, not going to happen. So I slept under the stars that night and it was really pleasant. Um, but most of the nights you're finding a camp spot and you're putting down your bivy and you're going to sleep on your own and just whenever you feel like it, which is actually really freeing. Because when you know that you can take a nap at any point in time, it feels pretty good. Like, you'd be surprised at how few naps you take when you know you can take a nap at any point in time. I have a question. Yeah. How much of your days were spent biking versus sleeping versus eating? Most of my day was spent eating. Um, <laughs> yeah, a lot of it is spent like eating on the bike. So you have like a bag on the front, like they call it like a gas can that you can unzip and like chew up, you know, grab all your snacks and stuff like that. Um, everybody sets up their cockpit differently so that whatever you want is easily accessible, um, to you. And, uh, I would spend a lot of time, like if, uh, I did take a stove, uh, which is something I didn't do in Kyrgyzstan, which caused me a little bit of problem. Um, but this time I took a stove and I used a BioLite, which, um, feeds off of, uh, uh, wood or sticks or paper or whatever you might have. So I didn't have to worry about gas canisters because you can't fly with them. Then you have to find them and then you don't know what size they're going to be. So, uh, the BioLite would also charge things, which is really awesome. Um, because you use a Dynamo Hub or I used a Dynamo Hub, you can also use solar panels and there's a few other ways to charge product um, and use uh, battery packs while you're riding. So you have your lights and you have your phone and you have your GPS always charged and ready to go. And then this little stove would also charge stuff while I was like cooking noodles or whatever. Um, so it's kind of cool because I'm a real big fan, whether I'm road tripping or whether I'm bike packing of like multitasking when you stop. So it's not just stopping, it's I'm charging, I'm eating, I'm rearranging product in my packs, I'm using the restroom, like whatever I need to do all in that one stop. So it's not seven stops, you know, along the way. Um, and what I found is that uh, I, most of the time, you know, you're riding and you're eating or drinking, but sometimes you do just need to stop um, and, and have that snack or um, a lot of times, especially in this race, it's moving water around. You know, you have water in other bottles that aren't accessible. So now you need to move them into the bottles that are most accessible to you. Um, I would say, like, based on kind of the, the Strava data um, from my GPS and things like that, I, like, I think one of the stints, I think I tried to record the entire stint from the first 250, 250 miles. And I think it was, like, 50 hours and, like, 23 of those were moving or something. It sounds really bad in the 
ratios, but it's um, like when you think about like, I was trying to sleep like four-ish hours a night. Um, and then the stopping, like stopping to pee, stopping to move water around, stopping to buy water, stopping at a shop, things like that. You actually use up quite a bit of time um, doing that stuff. So my goal was to basically ride 18-ish hours and then be stopped the other, you know, hours for whatever it takes. And then of course there are the moments where you're hiking, pushing your bike, um, and moving super, super slow and it feels like you're stopped. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm, I also am curious, what was your bike setup like? Yeah. So, I, um, Oh, yeah. And I was just going to add to that, like, I saw in, I was reading a little bit of the, like, race Bible of that race. They, they recommended, like, a mountain bike, basically, but then I saw that you had a gravel bike, which mm -hmm. you're about to describe. So, kind of what led to that, also what led to that decision of, of going gravel yeah. versus mountain. So uh, there's a really awesome story. If you go to the Atlas Mountain Race, it's just at Atlas Mountain Race on Instagram. There's a great little story that's actually somewhat embarrassing, but still kind of funny in their like stories feed that you can grab from the, the race itself. It's like in the history uh, of me at the waterfall heckling anyone who's on a mountain bike and not absolutely crushing us, <laughs> um, which is kind of super bad, but it's also kind of funny because a mountain bike would have felt like pure luxury in a way because um, it was rough. I mean, a lot of the stuff we're riding, it's straight up Moab. Um, there were sections where, you know, I feel like I'm a really solid descender and um, I was definitely sketched out. Um, there were also spots where uh, it was literally impossible to ride, or at least was for me um, when I can only imagine. And, uh, folks who aren't used to that kind of terrain. Um, so the reason I, I rode a Breadwinner G-Road, which is the bike I had made by Breadwinner when I got ready for Kyrgyzstan. Um, I love that little bike. It is phenomenal. It's a 650B and um, I can put 700s on it and I've done like RPI and um, some of the other gravel races and that's what I'll use for Belgian waffle ride this fall with 700s on it. But 650s um, give it a little more cush and then also a little more durability. Um, but, and it's a steel bike. It's full steel, um, rigid fork, steel fork, um, comfy AF, <laughs> not a mountain bike. Um, I think that for me, if I went back to do that race again, I would figure out maybe like a steel hardtail mountain bike scenario. Um, there were, were several people who rode full suspension bikes. Um, the problem for me is that the gravel bike allows for so much more storage. Um, once you start adding in suspension, you start to take away room for storage while adding on weight and our bikes are already crazy heavy. So there's kind of this like back and forth, right? Like once I add on all that weight, even if I have suspension, how much is it doing? And in any, anything <laughs> would be helpful for sure. Like I, my toes are still numb. Um, my hands still don't quite work the way they used to. Um, but at the same time, being able to have all of the gear that I know that I need to survive 
if I slow down just a little bit in some of those descents, if it if I have to walk a section or two that I would normally be able to ride on a mountain bike, it's probably fairly minimal compared to riding the mountain bike fully loaded. Um, so yeah, I think a mountain bike is definitely like, I think we'll see next year more people on mountain bikes at um, Morocco if, it, if Atlas Mountain Race gets to happen again. Um, I know that when our, we first went to Silk Road, um, most people were on gravel bikes and last year saw a lot more mountain bikes and even some carbon bikes. Um, and I think what all this stuff really comes down to is what you're most comfortable with and what you're used to doing. Um, that old saying of you never change anything for race day really plays true in this scenario because if you're not used to how you pack your bike, if you're not used to how things work, um, if you don't feel 100% confident in your gear, it's going to be really hard to get out into the middle of nowhere and still maintain that confidence and that positivity when things start to get a little rough. And they get so, rough. yeah. <laughs> so, what was all the gear that you had with you? Like, did you, like, as far as sleeping supplies, were you just sleeping under the stars or were you, did you also bring a tent? Yeah. So uh, I'd been watching the weather quite a bit beforehand, and I had only, to Kyrgyzstan, I'd only taken a bivy pad and a quilt, which is a, um, it's a Western mountaineering nanolite, so it was like, a, it, it, it handled freezing temps, and I've slept up here um, at Twin Lakes Pass uh, in freezing temperatures before, where I've woken up and it's um, frosty, my shoes are frosted over, and, and things like that, and I've been comfortable. Um, well, the crew in Kyrgyzstan then proceeded to just get snowed on every single night. And one thing you don't want when you're in a bivy is to get snowed or rained on because nothing keeps that. A bivy is um, just like a bag that goes over you in your sleeping bag. There's nothing to hold the bag off of your face. Um, so you're just getting like suffocated. <laughs> it can be a little claustrophobic. And in fact, when I bought my bivy, I think um, one of the guys at IME told me that he wouldn't wish Vivian on his closest enemy <laughs> because it is kind of claustrophobic. But actually, the reason that I really like a bivy is because it is just you in this bag and you can unzip it and then you can look at the stars and it's really quite pleasant. So I had actually bought a Big Agnes bike packing solo tent. Um, it's the Fly Creek solo and it's one of the very few tents that has like really short poles, um, which is another problem. Everything's too long. So then you have to figure out where to put everything. So everything you take has to have its place. Uh, my sleep kit, uh, the climate pad that I use, I use a climate ozone pad, and the black diamond twilight bivy, and then the nano light sleeping uh, quilt, uh, it, it packs to about this size, all three of those things together, um, which is awesome. <laughs> and yeah. so uh, I had actually taken the tent to Morocco and when I discovered that the temperatures, because it's getting in toward February, we're out of a little bit more of the wintry kind of stuff. And we had um, scouted, I scouted it with a, a buddy, Jesse, um, from Oregon a couple days before we raced. We scouted the first stage and we went over the highest part of the um, ride, which is like at 8,000 feet or so. And it was cool, but it wasn't cold. So I decided to not take the tent so I could sh shove my bags full of more food. <laughs> um, and so I just took the, my normal sleep kit. I did not take the tent and it was absolutely perfect. Um, 
you know, that's always a, a toss up with weather and things like that. But um, yeah, in general, it's just that. Um, find a flat-ish spot, throw it down. It takes just a couple seconds to set up, have a little snooze. And what, what part of your, what part of the bike did that tent go into? Uh, so my sleep kit went into my saddlebags. So I used um, Apidura, helped me out with some um, bags before I left, which was really awesome. And so uh, they have a backcountry um, saddlebag that's like, I think it's 14 liters. And so that- that's, that's the one that goes on the back of your seat, right? Yep. Yep. I, and I actually just bought that. <laughs> It's awesome. It's super awesome. It's so sleek and it's super easy to use. And so basically my process is I just shove stuff in there. You know? <laughs> and then, um, and so, yeah, that was all in the back along with my sleep kit. Anything I don't need all the time, I would shove into the back, uh, that bag. Then I had a bar bag. I have um, my frame bag and my, the bag I put on my handlebars and then my gas can bag are all made locally here by Broad Fork Bags. Um, he's at a Summit Park. His name is Josh. Super awesome. My front bag, if you ever see photos of the bike, uh, it's, it's donuts. Um, <laughs> everyone else uses black and brown uh, color schemes on their bike packing stuff, but my bike's yellow and pink and my bags are hot teal or something. <laughs> They're turquoise. <laughs> so, um, and then Apidura also sent me to um, two uh, bags for my fork uh, that were awesome to put water in my stove and stuff in. So I had food and water and stove in my fork bags, more food in my donut bar bag, um, a lot of my electronics in my um, gas can, and then I had more food and all the stuff like first aid kit, um, crap shovel, um, uh, wipes and all that stuff, uh, all and all of my, um, repair kit type things all went into my frame bag. And then I also have a keg, I'm just a little guy, um, that goes on my down tube, which has um, like all the repair stuff that you hope you never need to use. Um, so yeah, that's kind of where everything went. And then oh, I also rode this one with a Camelback, or a, so the Kind Pack um, with a hydration bladder in it because I drink better when my hydration's on my pack than when it's on my bike. And then I had another bottle easily accessible on a broad fork bag um, on my bars as well. So stuff gets real crammed on there, which also starts to speak to that mountain bike versus um, drop bar bike scenario. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, yeah, me and my husband are, are trying to get into bike packing. So I'm starting to buy some of that gear and we're hoping to do some trips this summer. So. I think one of the things that hooked me the most on all of this is that I didn't realize what like kind of a gear geek I really am. I mean, I've always loved gear, but it really does come down to like going out and trying stuff and like packing things a certain way and then being like, oh, that didn't work and starting over again. And just kind of that process of figuring stuff out and like putting the puzzle pieces together. You're riding and you're, you're worrying about your fitness and things like that. But then there are these other elements that kind of take riding matters but also your organization and when you stop and how long you stop also matters. Um, I found that guys, uh, I would be riding with guys at, at um, Atlas Mountain Race and I'd see people and you're always seeing, you kind of hopscotch with like a bunch of different people over time and they kind of become your little family. And um, even though it's a solo ride, you're just like seeing people, the same people over and over. And I, I feel like I became Newman at one point in time where 
everyone would think they had passed me and they're gone because I'm sitting there making noodles on the road somewhere, you know, and they're just like, okay, whatever. And they carry on. And then 20 minutes later, I get down to town and I'm at the shop and there they are. And they're just like, Jackie, like, how are you here now? Well, I'm just using my time differently than you are. And also with sleeping, I would do a lot of my riding at night because it's hot during the day and I would have to like stop maybe a little bit more during the day than they did. But I felt really good riding at night. So people would bivy and they would have passed me before. And then like midday the next day, we're all at the same cafe and they're like, why? <laughs> we thought you ditched you, you know? And I'm like, yeah, I'm sorry guys. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so we do have a question a little bit about, so this is a completely self-supported ride. Um, what, what did you do for food and what type of challenges were there in getting the nutrition that you needed? Yeah. So um, I took with me a bunch of stuff. Um, like I actually didn't have that many gummies with me, but I had um, <laughs> a carbo rocket. I use their half evil because it has caffeine in it and it also has calories um, and electrolytes. So I used that mix, but I also would take with me um, noon tabs and then uh, emergency uh, because sometimes with the fizz and just emergency would make my tummy feel better certain times. So mixing stuff up like that in different ways um, would help me out um, as well as I had like a ton of like Snickers. I still have one. This is one from actually a <laughs> store in Morocco. Um, those were for like treat times. Like you need to get through this. Here's a treat. But then I also had ramen and then I also had uh, oatmeal with me. And the thing that I learned is that a lot of the stores, they have like really kind of like light sweet treats. Like they had, um, uh, cookies and things like that that don't give you a lot of calories and also not a lot of sodium. So having the ramen with me really helped a lot. Um, the one struggle was that getting like decent calories when you stopped was really hard. They really like their omelets there, <laughs> but they don't put any salt on them. Um, and then the other thing I found kind of partway through, and this is thanks to another racer, Ben Salthouse, um, I'd been worried about some of the dairy um, I just don't, you know, as you know, like riding and dairy don't always go super well together, but he was just like loving this like mango-y yogurt drink thing. And I'm like, I like mango lassi. I'll try one of those. <laughs> Changed my life. Like every time I stopped, I would try, I would try a different flavor or I would get one of those like yogurt treats and then you've got some protein and then some, um, good fats as well as a little bit more of the calorie, um, easy calories and set me straight, like I was totally fine. One thing that was super weird in Morocco, I felt like I burnt my tongue from the sun. Like I felt like I was like mouth breathing so much. Um, and it could have been like partially that, also partially literally mouth breathing too much, um, as well as some of that fine dust. My mouth hurt so bad all the time. And you're also eating sugar all the time. Um, trying to balance that, like not eating so much sugar with, eating real food when you're four days out, it gets really tricky. Um, at one point I found an orange and I was so excited to eat an orange and it hurt so bad. <laughs> Luckily they also had bananas. So the banana went a little bit better, but yeah, it's um, on these long rides, carrying enough food that you can survive is key, but getting those supplemental treats along the way really are what make it um, 
fun and doable. <laughs> so, so you brought enough food that if needed, you could have uh, sustained yourself just on your food, but mm -hmm. then also you obviously stopped and got oh, bought yeah. food along the way. Oh yeah, there was one stop uh, later. It was like the Moab of Morocco. It literally looked like Moab. I was <laughs> searching for like an ice cream cooler out front. They don't have a lot of ice cream there and I found it. And you better believe I like full on just like pile of snacks on the sidewalk and like mowed down. Again, <laughs> not healthy, not stuff that you would ever want to brag about eating in any other environment. But it's just like, you got to do what you got to do and you got to make it work so that you can get back on the bike and go. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I had extra food when I was done. I did talk to a lot of people that ran out of food and that to me is terrifying. Yeah, what would those people do in that situation if you run out of food and you still have days ahead of you? Like Some of them scratch, some of them try to get to that next town and just load up on whatever they can. Um, mm -hmm. A couple people did drop out because they just didn't, they couldn't handle it. And also, you know, you are in the middle of nowhere, so you have to figure out that risk factor. Um, one guy, Nico, he ended up eating a lot of chocolate, like a lot of chocolate. <laughs> oh my gosh. Have you ever had like an experience um, that taught you the importance of nutrition? Kind of like an aha moment where you're like, oh gosh, this is important. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, I think uh, for me, um, probably... I probably actually had a, a couple that like led to it, but I think um, Kyrgyzstan really was it. I thought I had really prepared and like used the products that I was going to be using um, and had really kind of practiced with it as it were until um, the reason that I ended up dropping out in Kyrgyzstan is uh, there was a day on my third day out that it was uh, super, super, super hot. It started off actually kind of humid and then I dropped into this area that, um, I don't know if you've ever been at like the Wall Street or Cane Creek area down in Moab, but it's just like these big red walls of rock and this super flat road. And the river was actually probably the farthest away it had been um, on that whole trip. And uh, it was way down this kind of gnarly, um, scrubby section of uh like probably an old washout and uh it was later I learned it was 113 degrees out I didn't know that at the time I just knew I was hot and like my arms were searing and um, I kept putting on sunscreen and it just kept kind of like melting off and then I knew I had plenty of water with me but I was drinking water and I was drinking my electrolytes I kept telling myself what I needed to be doing and it, nothing tasted good nothing felt good and ended up puking up water instead of drinking it and um, knew I was kind of in a bad way at that point in time. Made it to the next town and just realized that like I'm not prepared for this. Um, ended up scratching which was probably the best decision I made because I had a really awesome time in Kyrgyzstan after that not racing. And what really struck me um, kind of in, in reassessing what had happened was that I had really scheduled like what I was going to eat and when I was going to eat it and how I was going to eat it uh, in my head beforehand. And what I really needed to do was just load up on all the things that I know I like to eat and let myself eat them as I wanted to eat them and not kind of force it. Um, and taking that away, I ended up recovering a bit and I went to yurt camp <laughs> by uh, the, uh, it's the world's second largest salty lake, Issaquil, which is, um, 
kind of the gem of Kyrgyzstan. And uh, I would ride out toward the course like four or five hours out and back every day once I'd had a couple days of recovery. And I would stock up in town on just like yummy treats that I was excited about and go out and do these long rides and come back and I would never feel bonked. I'd never feel like I was completely worked. I always felt like super stoked and it kind of dawned on me like what I need to do is yes, have those pieces of nutrition that supply electrolytes, supply sodium, supply the fats that I need. Um, oh, I forgot on the on this ride, one thing I took with me was a bag of um, mixed nuts that I made like at the bulk, um, like I brought with me from uh, here. Um, and I had like um, everything from like almonds to um, uh, pumpkin seeds to some like different types of like you know, salted and spicy and various things in there so that at any point in time, if I needed more salt or I felt like I needed more fat, I could just stop and like have a handful of nuts and uh, it would actually like carry me quite a ways and like, you know, some, some different, you know, things that actually have crunch to them sometimes are really exciting out there. Um, and so that was kind of what then propelled me into the next couple of years, which is, uh, so I did Stupid Pony this past um, fall, which is 210 miles from um, Lehigh, Utah to Wendover, Nevada, or I guess it's West Wendover, Utah, East Wendover. Anyway, it's Wendover. Um, and uh, with no, there's no 7-Eleven out there. Like once you start, there's nowhere to stop for food. So you really had to take everything you wanted with you. And I maybe overdid it a little bit, but kind of in preparation for Morocco, I'm like, what will I want to eat when I'm in the middle of nowhere and I have all the things I love with me on the bike? You know, Twizzlers, Fritos, um, PB&J, uh, some magic bars that I make, a bunch of different things like that. Will I eat the salty stuff? Will I eat the sweet stuff? What will I eat? And that um, really kind of helped me get a better gauge on eating what I want, when I want it, and not forcing it. And that seems to work out. Cool. I really like that. And I, I like your emphasis on using real foods. I think Emily and I have also kind of veered towards that route. Like if I'm doing a two hour road race, I'll, I can just go off of, you know, the quick drink mixes and whatever sweet stuff. But yeah, anything longer, I am like making rice cakes. I'm, you know, trying to think, bring as many real foods as possible and um it's really it's fun to hear other people of what they like to bring and get some ideas of of other types of foods that you can bring so yeah I think it's yeah. interesting too you know like um I would say that from a nutritionist standpoint what we end up doing on these bike packing races is not good for you um it's it's a lot it is a lot of sugar and it's not um it's not good calories per se, but a lot of it too is that if I were to make rice cakes at home, I would have to travel with them, you know, a week early in Morocco and they'd still have to be good a week later after spending, you know, three days at 80 plus degrees outside in my bag, right? Like there's a point where, you know, and fresh fruit, like everyone was loaded up with bananas when we were leaving uh, Marrakesh at the Atlas mountain race. And it's like, yeah, I don't know if when we're going to see fresh fruit again, you know? Um, but it's also at some point, if you have this super strict, you know, there, there are folks that are out doing these rides that are gluten-free, 
vegan, vegetarian, et cetera, I'll eat anything, but it also poses another problem of making sure you have what you need with you so that if you get to a store or you get to a place and it's, it's all filled with wheat, <laughs> what are you going to eat and how are you going to make it work? And I think that's another um, side of this that takes you outside of that normal racing realm where you're going to have a hard stop, a hard, you know, hard start, hard stop and you're going to be able to get the food that you're used to right away. Um, you have to definitely be a little flexible in when and how it's going to come together. Well, thank you for sharing uh, with us about your race. Yeah. It's, really, it's really fascinating to hear about. Yeah, the um, landscape was absolutely spectacular. I mean, any if, if anyone has any goals to do some like longer rides it definitely opens up your ability to um see things that you would never see otherwise yeah i have extreme wanderlust so <laughs> it's super fascinating to me hopefully in the future i'll get to go yeah okay so before we finish we have some quick fire questions for you are you ready for them uh, uh, yeah <laughs> okay so uh the first one Gummy bears or gummy sharks? Ooh, probably bears. We get a lot more <laughs> variety. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, dirt or road? Dirt road. <laughs> dirt. All dirt. right. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, camping or hotel? Camping if I'm by myself. Okay. Cats or dogs? Cat. Cat. <laughs> um, what's the dumbest thing you've ever spent a significant amount of money on? Bike packing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And uh, last one. What's your favorite place you've ever been and why? I think it was Kyrgyzstan. I, I would love, absolutely love to go back there and just ride. Um, the mountains are so incredible. The people are so friendly. It really, I know it sounds cheesy, like stole a piece of my heart, but it, it <laughs> is so spectacular. And I would just absolutely love to go spend more time there. Nice. We'll have to make a girl's trip or something. <laughs> okay. Well, we've loved interviewing you. Oh, thank, thank you for you. sharing everything. Thank um, you. I really appreciate it. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll see you ladies later. Bye. Bye. Okay, bye.